Okay, I don't even, uh, I'm rolling here if y'all are. I don't even need any music. Let's just start. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of my favorite electric toothbrush, Quip. Good habits are what matter most for your dental care. So go to getquip.com slash badchristian and get your first refill pack free. Rolling. Okay, Toby, I just got a COVID test. You did? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Did you? Are you feeling bad? I'm going to go visit King's Kaleidoscope at the studio, and they all those guys flew in, and they all got COVID tests from out of town. Yeah. And so they're all in this like mansion up like 100 miles from here, up by the Canadian border that somebody let them have. It's like, um, who is it? Uh, it's the people that make those Christian books or something like that. I can't remember what it is. It's, some, it's a company or whatever. There's somebody cool that they know or whatever, and let them use this big mansion that, that rents for like $5,000 a night. Um, Whoa. And they've been recording up there and stuff like that. I'm hoping we could get up there sometime if I can get the right connection, basically. But um, And they are doing all these writing sessions and all this stuff up there. And so I was going to go check out and hang out there and kind of collaborate. I'm not looking to do music exactly, but that style of – intense collaboration they do i really like um so i'm going up there and they all got covid tests so just because they're all flying in and stuff right, right and right. so i just went today um it's hilarious because it's the um it's the place in soto where you used to have to go to get your emissions done so I know exactly where it is, and it's exactly the same process and same treatment of people, except for instead of where they hook the thing into your tailpipe and put the thing on your engine computer, they yeah. just swab your nose. You go through the same, you oh. go through the same depot. It's like you were getting your emissions test, but it's your damn nostrils that they st- stick a uh, push broom up in and leave for an hour. I mean, it's terrible. Are the people wearing like full outfits, like hazmat suits? No, and stuff it's like pretty that, chill. Or? It's pretty chill. I mean, you know, that's one of the ways. That's one of the reasons you know. Things are more chill when you see the people that, like, to, you would have thought about it in March or April to be even driving near that place you're in trouble. Right. Like, well, yeah. I, I was like, because, you know, really, a free testing site, that have to be the number one place you could catch a thing. Right. That'd, you be, would think. The, that'd be the place I would think right. COVID would exist. Well, that and, you know, the, you know, uh, the, the, the only other place, the, pe- the places that you would know would be the most hard hit would be the testing sites and the uh, people who were trapped in a tiny, tiny couple hundred square foot uh, tube in the air. Right. F- filled with hundreds of people. Right. That, that's where you would get it. That's where you would, there would never be able to keep employees in those situations. Right. right. Like right. you wouldn't be able At to all. keep enough employees if you just did that kind of behavior. Right. Uh, which obviously is not a problem. And these people at the testing place, they're wearing regular old surgical masks kind of casually. They don't obviously seem scared. And all, there's nobody there except for people who believe that they might have COVID and COVID. have symptoms. Right. That's where the – and they're not very worried about it. Yeah. So they well, must not be getting it from that. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not saying people don't get it. I'm just saying it's – you should calibrate how scared and what precautions you should take based on – People at the testing place and flight attendants. The amount that they are scared of it is about right. the right amount, is what I'm saying. Right. As seriously as they take it is about the right. That's about the right level, unless you have a pre-existing condition and you're worried. In which case, take it much more seriously than them. But right. for me or and you, I think behavior in the vein of a flight attendant would be pretty well calibrated. 
Yeah, totally. I, I think that we have gotten way off the track of healthy caution. I think you should be cautious. I think you should be aware. But you're right. It's funny. Uh, I didn't realize, but it's probably, you know, maybe two or three blocks from here, you know, maybe a mile from my house is a testing site. I didn't know. And I've been exercising and uh, I was running past this testing. I was running past this building and I saw all these cars and I was like, huh, what are they all doing here real early in the morning? And so huh? I just kept running. And I was like, why are those t- tents outside? And then I, I saw uh, official testing site. I was like, oh, should I, run, <laughs> should I run faster? What should I do? I was like, run eh, faster. Yeah. <laughs> just, I, it just doesn't matter. Like, I mean, these people are in their cars and those people are over there. And I, I mean, I just can't, I can't be jogging a hundred yards from cars that might have COVID and be overly worried about it. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I I get it. If all those people were, you know, hanging out, the dumbass Donald Trump takes his mask off when he has COVID and is contagious. I get it. That's stupid. But also it feels just as stupid to be so like there are people like that we know, Jess and I know that don't leave the house for or anything they are petrified still worried now. about wiping down groceries now. and stuff oh right 100 yeah. percent. and i and i understand i was very nervous in the beginning i was nervous because i didn't have good information there's more information there's more experience there's a little bit more data we're seeing numbers now and it's all been bad we've handled it poorly and all that stuff but i but i but the the really outrageous fear is what is dangerous and what somebody like Donald Trump preys upon. It preys upon. I know. That's what gets me so bad is I'm so worried. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm worried. I'm in a back into a, an uncertain territory, but it isn't about virus. Virus is no longer a yeah. thing that I feel uncertainty and change my behavior because of. I've got that. I'm fine with that. Like I accept COVID as part of the world that I'll live in the rest of my life and get a few times. Okay, moving on. I I accept that. Um, might die from it one day. I accept that. Anyway, I am more worried about... Uh, I, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but I get the sense that nobody knows what's going to happen. I don't think anybody right. does that thinks they do. Anybody that thinks they know what happens next, I don't think you should listen to them. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I think the territory of uncertainty across vast spectrums of the way we live is so in flux now that, and it may be, it's not, it's possible that that's the permanent state of things. Of course, things will be hotter and colder, but right, right here with this virus and the election coming up, I, I'm not sure if we're not set up for, uh, like the, it feels like we're on the threshold of people loosening up about the virus but w- they're wanting to wait until after the election to do so does that sound right to you yeah i think so i could see that like like yeah. I, even here in seattle these people are they they nobody's i don't think they're that scared they but they still socially feel like they need to pretend to be scared basically right but i don't think they really are i think the average person is just in that spot and they're ready to go but now You've really got like they don't want to be like a conservative person that isn't scared. Right, right. What a weird position that, that <laughs> no. Donald Trump and the conservatives have put them in. Like, yeah, that's a that's a really asshole, well played move to 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 make you know. And so there, it's almost as if you feel people not wanting to admit that we've done like we've not that we've done well. We've done p- the worst you can do, and yeah. yet we're still overcoming. We're moving forward. Things can be, we can, but now that's a taboo in some, 
before the election, that's a taboo. Right. After the election, it won't be a taboo if Biden wins the election. And then it'll still play into the conservatives' hands because they will have predicted that it would have gone away, which it will right. feel like it does, even though people will still be dying every day from it. Right. But it will seem like it went away. Right. Because it, there won't be the taboo to, to not start Instagramming about having fun again in life. Right. So it'll feel like all of a sudden, as soon as the Democrats got in office, the virus disappeared. And the people that were holding on to that extra fear will see maybe it is time for me to loosen up too. But that'll all happen in a kind of a fast way. And then they'll, Breitbart will run with the story about how it disappeared. <laughs> right. And it's just going to be too crazy. So, or that the you know it's not so simple as Biden wins and takes office which is a different that's a whole different scenario to think about planning for and they're not similar no what was the uh test like did it hurt your nose or anything yes. what was, what was, it, it did yes it uh. was it was like it was awesome though i mean like i i thought of it <laughs> i just went into i did the same approach as the way I get in the cold pool in the morning. I said, oh, I know how to do this. It's like an experience that a few right. seconds later, I'll be over it and I'll appreciate it and think it was fun in a crazy way. So I went into it with that mindset. No, it was going to hurt, yeah. but it was literally, I knew it was how long it was going to last. I watched the person in front of me and thought, holy shit, this is going to be wild. Oh, so I just looked kind of positively to that part of it. And Ugh. The guy was really nice, but he stuck. He said, "I'm gonna do both." You know, he did. He did everything just right from a behavioral standpoint to put you at ease and you know make a connection with you. To right. earn just, a, I mean, he did great. Um, and but he put that thing up there and had to like r rub it around. So uncomfortable is much more description than pain. Like if right. somebody stuck a Q-tip way into your ear and moved it around, that would be so uncomfortable. Yeah, more than it would hurt. This hurt also. But more, it, it goes in deeper than you think it is. They leave it in there longer than you think it is, does. Ah. And you can feel them twirling oh, it around on the walls of your upper nasal canal more than you would think you could. <laughs> Did you like <laughs> gag or it tickle your throat? You call for anything? If it was or? farther, you would probably gag, but it's up. Like you think, right. is he in my brain? Does he touch? Oh. I hope he doesn't touch my brain. I might die from it. You know, that's what it feels like. And you can feel that you have sensation up there too. So it's kind of, you Whoa. know, it was an intense experience, but just for a few seconds. But he's counting down on the second nostril and it's like three, two, one. And you can just go ahead and pause. I'll say, I'll say three, two, one again. But Paul, this time, pause between two and one on your podcast player for 20 seconds. And that'll be what it felt like. <laughs> Okay, so three, two, and then just forever, and oh, then five. He, it, it didn't take 20 seconds. I'm saying the right, feeling felt like to it. me felt like that between the two and the one was 20 seconds. It's like we had not time dilate because I was like, I, I was remaining calm. Like I didn't let myself not be calm. And But I just, it was, I could feel the pressure to panic or feel, you know, to change my mental state. And then when he pulled it out, he said, you're free to go. I start the car, I roll up the window, and I'm like, whoa, like I'm all, like I got <laughs> adrenaline, I'm all fired up, you know. <laughs> it was a funny experience. It wasn't It wasn't that painful, but I thought it was fun. I, I enjoyed the adversity of, of the COVID test. How much did it cost you? It was free. I just, and I, I just told him I didn't have insurance. So I, even though I do, because it's just less information to enter. Yeah, well, that's great. You're right. That's, I just said I had a cough and I don't have insurance. So, you know, and I scan the QR code and I'll get my result tomorrow, but I don't, I, mean, I don't think I have it or anything. I just did it yeah. as a formality. 
All right, let's take a quick break here, and I got a question for you. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? Seriously. Uh, you know, it feels like you go to the dentist, and they always are like, you know, you could do a little bit better. Enough. Give me something, a reward. With Quip's new Smart Electric Toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. Potentially, uh, you know, you could not only have amazing teeth and amazing gums, all of that with Quip, but even get all of these rewards. Seriously, you've probably heard us talk a million times about Quip, and that's because I use it every day. It's been my number one go-to toothbrush for years now. But this is something brand new that rewards you and your mouth. Seriously, the Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. Track when and how well you brush, get tips and coaching to improve your habits, earn points for daily brushing and bonus points, completing for, uh, completing for challenges like streaks, redeem for rewards like free products, gift cards, and discounts from Quip and partners. This is fun for the whole family, seriously. If you already have a Quip, <clears throat> you can upgrade to uh, with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. Sensitive sonic vibrations, two-minute timer with 30-second pulses, for guided clean, slim, lightweight, and sleek, they have it all. These toothbrushes are just amazing. Seriously, it's beyond brushing. Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. So here's what I want you to do. Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to quip.com slash badchristian right now to get your first refill free. You can join over 5 million mouths who use Quip. Seriously, that's your first refill free at getquip.com slash badchristian. That's G-E-T. Q-U-I-P dot com slash bad Christian. Quip, better oral health, made simple and rewarding. I don't understand that having to go that deep up in your nose, but my spittle particles apparently carry it to, can carry it to you within six feet. Like you can, you can, your, you know, your body can get a hold of it. It can get a hold of you from six feet, but they have to jam a Q-tip so far up your nose. And I understand, I guess, I mean, that's the only way I'm sure they, everybody wishes there was a better way to test for it. But I just, it seems so bizarre that my breath and uh, saliva particles or whatever could get to you. That's true in a and way. It seems like, I it think seems it like they can swab they, your mouth or something, but. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean there because you're saying if it's in a tiniest droplet that comes out of my breath, why couldn't I just breathe on something and they test that? Right. Yeah. But they've got to get uh, – I guess they're probably looking for – I think I don't think it survives, though. Like, that's the thing about it on the breath and out and stuff. It doesn't really survive. It, so I think they probably got to get it in some mucus or something. Right. But still. Yeah, that's probably right. It dies quicker than everybody thinks. I mean, you yeah. can get it. I think that's what it is. That's why everybody keeps talking about the viral load. It's mm-hmm. that it does die quickly, but if you're in close proximity, like all those dumbasses in the Senate and all this, the uh, judiciary confirmation or whatever, they are just constantly around each other, whispering in each other's ears. You're at a bar talking real loud over the music over and over and over and over. That's That viral load is heavy enough to get to you. I mean, probably same same way as that's how you get the flu and stuff in some ways, too, the, just the viral load of it. But it, it is crazy. We, we went to the dentist today, and uh, the lady, Ike, is just Ike is our kid that just, you know, kids say the darndest things. He just looks at she goes, do you have any questions? He goes, well, I get COVID from this. <laughs> and the lady's like, what? And it was so funny because the kid is asking a real question, mm-hmm. and the lady has to answer real. And she has to say, oh, no, no. I mean, I don't have COVID. You know, you can never say never. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know. So she has to even do clarify, I can't promise you you won't, little boy. 
but most likely you won't. But I mean, I, I just thought that was so interesting, the the back and forth there for a minute, because the lady, it's a funny question. She's certain that you can't get it, and then it made her think, well, you know, I mean. But that means somebody she's a could. good dentist, because she respected sure, him sure, enough to, yes. to do that. Right, view. I agree. Because the people that just blazingly go, oh, no, you can't, that is not good right. because he uh, knows that you actually he he strongly suspects correctly that it could happen and yeah. he just doesn't know all the values and parameters around it and he's asking a genuine question and he knows if he if 100% no way and that guy is acting so confident about it or that d- dentist or whatever it is then he'd know I'm being I don't know that I'm being told the truth and then that's not good so right. I think I love it when the adult will give the We'll give the kid that disclaimer. Well, it's not, you can never say never. I appreciate yeah, I mean, that. And it is funny. I remember like, uh, now I'm just going to dentists and we walked around, uh, Home Depot yesterday, had to go back and get paint the same day. And I was like, man, just a few short months ago, I wouldn't have done any of that. But now I just feel like I, I, I feel a little bit more safe. Now, everybody's saying because now the numbers are rising back in New York and stuff because everybody's relaxing a little bit that it's mm-hmm. going to get worse. And, uh, Jess was talking about, she works at a hospital. This is just, you know, some conversation this isn't like documented doctors fears or whatever, but some people were just in the break room talking about, there is a chance too, though, that you could get COVID and the flu at the same time. Sure. So, so that would be even double more dangerous, whammy. obviously, you know, you get that double whammy of that. So I'm definitely getting my flu shot this year. And mm-hmm. they say the flu shot might could even help a little bit with COVID. I'm not sure, but I'm telling you that you know I, I've been saying it for the longest time I can say it that the way people understand sickness and viruses is very strange. And when I talk to the doctors about it and stuff, it's not clear. It just isn't near as no, clear know, as people I agree. think. And I think it has to do with kind of what you're saying on the testing there. Uh, like you talk about viral load. So it would be possible, for instance, people, this isn't like, it's kind of counterintuitive. You could have, let's say, uh, 3,200 uh, particles of COVID, the, the of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, the actual molecule. You might get two or 3,000 of them inside your nose, stuck to the wall of your nose in there. And yeah. you might not get COVID. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. And you don't become infected. However, those molecules are inside your body. Right. And you it didn't become able to replicate itself beyond the amount of molecules that were there. But that doesn't mean you don't, I mean, you know, so have it and don't have it is kind of a blurry line anyway. I Yeah, I totally agree. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it could be tens of thousands of particles that you could have and then either get it or not get it or carry it and be asymptomatic, do, do you really have it then? I mean, if you think of, like, think of all, all right. the viruses. Like, you know how the whole world's, like, coated in viruses and germs and bacteria? Yeah. Well, you have them, right? Right, right. On you. Yes. So, so you, are you asymptomatic? No, I don't think so. Well, they're not causing uh, symptoms, and you have the virus all right. over and inside of you, and you're asymptomatic, right? So are yeah. you sick? To some extent, I see what you're saying. See what I'm right, saying? Right, it's not yeah. that clear what no, anybody's right. talking about with have it. What does that mean? <laughs> what does right. it mean? Well, that's why you keep saying too, like uh, maybe uh, this guy had COVID and now might be mm-hmm. getting it again. And it's just they're just trying to ramp up the 
you know, fear porn again and that, that whole thing. It's, and I it's just, just it, it's just a really murky when you talk about that and what other conditions allow it to, you know, could you beat, could somebody beat back 32,000 particles over a couple of days? Did they really right. have it? Did they have a symptom? I mean, or did they just have molecules that propagated and had no effect on them? And what's the difference in that? Right. And then could they pass it on with never, and never have it? Well, I guess. Right. I mean, you know, it's just not, you know, it's just a, it's just another combination of, of things that are, I mean, you have tons of viruses and bacteria that are affecting you in different ways. I mean, I'm not trying to make it obscure. I'm just saying it's, the boundaries aren't really clear. If you ask good enough questions, you won't get good answers. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's just not enough data on this also. And there's so many conflicting ideas and thoughts about it. it I mean, it is hilarious just watching Fox News. I, I kept flipping back and forth and on the internet as well, on the websites from Fox to CNN, and it was literally, almost word for word, the exact opposite take on everything that Trump did. Mm -hmm. Fox would say, President President Trump doing great. Doctors are saying uh, that he's uh, got a great recovery, might be released, and then he is released. And then uh, CNN would say that... uh, doctors say that this uh, this is bad news for Trump. There's two instances where he had low oxygen levels. It's this, this, and this. They, they're not being clear about the, what they're telling us. Something might be really wrong with Like I was like, this is so crazy. One news outlet that is very powerful and the other news outlet that's very powerful, at least in the world of inf- uh, relaying information, are telling us exact opposite things. And, but they and, both have the ability, without being lying, and so I'm saying the ambiguity right. of the biology is right. something They're that they, they prey upon because people don't understand it. And right. doctors, don't, they just tell you programmatic things. And it's not, you know, like you could see all the different kinds of doctors arguing about stuff, obviously, yeah. anyway. So it's whatever. But there's plenty of ambiguity for any side with any agenda to overplay or underplay the virus. And yeah. so the landscape of what you will see in the national conversation will determine what type of treatment. But if, if people on another side want to downplay the virus at some point in the future, it'll be very easy to do. Yeah. And we know that that's just what you, you know, you'll be a victim to it being overplayed and underplayed constantly, either, no matter what happens, basically. All right. Now, the, the big thing I want to know is, do you get to go to the mansion by yourself, or you got to take that family with I'm you? I'm not taking no family. Are you oh, crazy? boy. Are you spending the night? Yeah. Ooh. You get like a dad time away. And it was 100 like a miles. Dude time. I, I acted like that was, uh, oh, it's so far. But I mean, I, it means I get to do two 100-mile drives by myself. Oh, my you know? God. That's a dream come so true. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to I'm, I'm excited to do that. And Bridget said that she was uh, she's talking about, going to Palm Springs because it's cheap and good in this time of year. <laughs> wow. And I, I'm pretty sure she means fly. I think she's ready to do it. So I'm, I'm pumped about that. Y'all, you that. and your family are going to fly to Palm Springs. I don't know. I mean, but I mean, I could tell by the way she was talking about it. What is happening? You're going to stay at a her, mansion and you're going to Palm yep. Springs too? Good God. I, I, bougie. Well, I mean, bougie. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm in development of a new, you know, lifestyle. To, to be honest, I'm not looking for the. I'm not looking for anything to go back to normal. So I'm trying to customize from here, basically. But I have a very. I'm in a very strict routine mode right now. Yeah. And so for the first time ever, it makes sense to me that when this nine weeks of school is over, or around that time, I'm doing this 69 stuff. I'm getting right. up early seven days a week. I'm working hard. Um, I'm in a routine. I'm trying to provide a routine for my family. And then, you know, we're, we got to take breaks from that. And then yeah. that'll be great. 
So I'm, yeah. that's never made sense to me before, but to build this structure of what we have to do in this season, um, yeah, I can just go ahead and say eight, nine weeks from now, book something and let's just do that and do that every, and if we do that across this year, that'll be, that's just, that's my kind of my design for the year. That makes sense to me because it'll be very detailed and regimented between the breaks. So, wow. you know, I've never lived in any fashion that was regimented or disciplined ever. This is actually yeah. the first time. So it's the first time vacation could make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know when Because I've lived vacation, vacation as a lifestyle. So I, that's yeah. not so crazy. No, for sure. Jess just starting her new job. That means she doesn't have much vacation time yet and it'll take a while. So we probably won't go on vacation for a bit. But since we live in the Midwest now, I am definitely going to push hard for we go on real vacations like mm -hmm. we used to live near the beach and you could just you know and all that stuff but now we don't so now is a real vacation where we go maybe we go for a week we've never really done that you know what <laughs> i mean like, like something crazy like it is, actually I know, a week it, not like go to europe or do something just like be gone a whole just gone for a week i know that's a, that's my life we never right. had you're right because my whole life's been in some way a vacation in sense of can go whenever you want okay i want to hear some pumped up music can we do that So what you're listening to here is a song called Always Have. It's a new song from the band Slick Shoes. Yes, Slick Shoes. It's their new album, Rotation and Frequency. It's the first Slick Shoes album in 17 years, and it's really everything you would want in a comeback album. Um, they're, they put this new album out now. They put a bunch of work into it. It sounds totally alive. It's on tooth and nail. Um, I just did a labeled episode with those guys. It's either out now or coming out today or tomorrow, but you should go check it out. But I really dig the album. It really feels alive. And it's, you know, I don't know what else to say. It's punk rock, and here it is. It's good. Uh, they've got merch bundles and vinyl that are all available from toothandnailrecords.merchnow.com, including vinyl from some of their classic albums, Rusty, Burnout, and Wake Up Screaming. If you remember those. Slick Shoes is back. And we'll have more music coming. They're doing. They're in great shape. They're a happy band. I did a group chat with all of them, so I, I can tell you they were getting along really well and and, and are enjoying life. So, it's, it's, and you can hear the music. So, check it out. It's on Spotify. You follow their account there, so you don't ever miss anything. Uh, it's a band come back to life. What a good story! Again, rotation and frequency is available everywhere now. So, go dig it. Well, Tony, thank you for joining us today. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you and, and your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll just get right into it. We're talking about Republican Jesus. And so when I was, I think maybe a good way to go is, I want to pull this up. I have it right here. I wanted to start with a quote from your book, but it's not a quote from you. It's a quote from Donald J. Trump. So, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it is in your book. So in a way, it's that. I have it. Oh, Toby, you have it? Yeah, read it. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, to me, is somebody I can think about for security and confidence, somebody I can revere in terms of confidential property. How about an impression while you're at it? That's just, <laughs> I can't do you it. do it believably. Come on. <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, confidential property, <laughs> and in terms of courage, and because I consider the Christian religion so important, he considers the Christian uh, and somebody I can totally rely on in my own mind. No one reads the Bible more than me. <laughs> I mean, that is just too good. I can't believe it. And I mean, it's just that that in a nutshell, it says so much more than even he was trying to say. It's just wild. It, it really does. And, and and I mean, I'm glad you put that at the beginning of your book because it really sums up your point in this uh, backwards way. That, of course, everybody knows that's an empty statement, especially the last sentence is so obviously false. One could only conclude that this is a very, very important thing to co-opt, this Jesus thing. That's that's just basically what's obviously true, and then you reverse engineer from there. (laughs) Yeah, and you see it. You know, he smashes through a crowd of peaceful protesters and holds up this Bible and it looks like his hand's going to catch on fire. Like right. nobody reads it more than you. And why, why do you look so awkward holding it? <laughs> but that's not new though, is what's fascinating about that is his use of it is the most brash, uh, you know, just hilarious, like flies in the face of anything. Um, it's, I, I don't even know if you think there's people that are even true. I don't even think the supporters really believe that, that he reads it or anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't even think that, but it's just so brash, but it's the, that's just the most exaggerated version of what's been happening for a couple thousand years. For sure, yeah. No, nothing nothing new about hypocritical uses of the Bible, about the, you know cherry-picking the Bible. And I try to put that into a little bit of context with the emergence of the Christian right uh, and Trump's kind of, uh, you know, where he fits in that in the book. But, you know, I, there's been backlash from right and left on some of the ways he's used the Bible. And yeah, I, my favorite is when he says that his favorite Bible verse is an eye for an eye. And everybody's like, wait a minute. Did you not read the rest of that verse in Matthew? Like, it may not look like that elsewhere in the Bible. But in Matthew, it's like, also turn the other cheek when you get struck, right? right. And it's like, oh, you totally missed that part. And indeed, he like totally misses all the anything that's like neighbor love <laughs> or, you know, you, you can't serve God and mammon, and like anything about the poor. It just he must have missed those parts while reading the Bible more than everybody else. Well, how did yeah. you get interested in this book in the first place? Tell me how you got the, you know, the motivation to take on such a direct project. Yeah, so I, I, I you know, I'm a professor of early Christianity and uh, ancient Judaism. So I spend most of my time actually kind of working in ancient inscriptions and coins and archaeology and uh, the, the texts as well. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I moved to Canada a few years ago, shortly after the Trump election, but I swear it's not connected. I just happened <laughs> to get the, the, the job in Vancouver then. I'm not an exile. Sure, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, um, I got to Canada and I started teaching the same approaches to the New Testament that I was teaching during my graduate training in Texas. 
And, you know, the students had some different reactions. And part of what was really cool and, uh, you know, something I learned a lot from is a lot of my students, uh, some of which are American, some of whom uh, are Canadian and from elsewhere in the world, were they're pissed off at the ways of the Christian right in America were using the Bible. They wanted to talk about it. They wanted to talk about the quotes not cut out and cherry pick, but in their actual context, both in the Bible and in ancient history. And I started to realize in our conversations that even, uh, you know, students who identified as conservative and as evangelical, but were from places that weren't the U.S., didn't understand the kind of uh, xenophobic, like anti-immigration and economic conservatist uses of the, the Bible. And they're just like looking at me like I've got two heads when trying, you know, assuming that this is how the Christian right has uh, uh, interpreted some of these texts. So in talking with them, I realized, you know, uh, you know, everything in context, there's a, a sort of special history to the way the Christian right has developed their particular ways of reading Jesus uh, in the New Testament. And so I wanted to figure out where a lot of that came from. So that's what the book is. It's a search for understanding where the modern um, interpretations of the Christian right in America came from, but also it's an attempt to go back into the sources and say, well, when you take this God made the male and female out of context and you put it back into its context in Matthew 19, what did they cut out? You know, and it's like all this really interesting stuff about uh, eunuchs who are kind of actually viewed as not male or female in the ancient context. And, you know, so similar instances like that, I can name a dozen. Um, and so also the historical context, like what was thinkable in the ancient world? When we're talking about, you know, Jesus and, and self-defense in the New Testament, like, can we talk about an AR-15 in the first century? Uh, so some of these questions are, you know, ones I wanted to take on as head on as I could in this book, because I, I don't know a lot of resources that deal with the biblical text as a way to really kind of critique what the Christian right is doing, because what they're doing is dangerous. It, to me, it's they're, they're weaponizing the Bible and they're using it against, uh, you know, marginalized groups in particular, uh, people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities, the poor, but also progressive Christians uh, more and more. So there's this kind of, uh, you know, uh, Christian, uh, you know, we're the only kind of Christian. We have the only right interpretation of the Bible. Uh, you know, type of positioning, the, the posturing that you see more and more. And that's what I wanted to poke holes in. Mm-hmm. It's really, it, it, I mean, it's such a sensitive subject. And that's why I was wondering, because you had a really long introduction to your book. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like, it was like a really long, I was like, I felt like, it, it, I, you might not have intended this, but I felt like you really wanted to explain yourself because it's such a touchy subject. Because when you, if you say something like, make fun of Trump or, uh, call him out for his use of the Bible, people go, yeah, but God called him or he's, he's a worker of God or something like that. So you, uh, is, right. was that part of, even with the length of the introduction, I, I, I liked how it was all laid out. You even did, uh, is it Richard Neves, uh, reconstruction of Jesus? And I, yeah, I love, yeah. I love that picture because nobody thinks that that's Jesus. Like that, <laughs> that is not white Jesus at all. And I love that you put that even in your introduction because it, I was like, okay, it, it, we got to clear some stuff up here. This is the guy you know, like th- this is who you say you worship and love. And Trump probably would not let that guy in our country. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a right? chance. Zero chance. <laughs> that, that guy's definitely illegal. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, totally. But uh, yeah, it's such a uh, touchy subject there. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and uh, it, so Trump's really not the first though, right? Like when you say cherry picking Bible verses, yeah. also when you say the Christian right, how did, it, maybe you can just give us a little bit of insight there. How how do we get to where Trump can say anything, basically? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a fascinating history. And I got to, you know, I got to destabilize my own uh, knowledge here. I'm an expert on the ancient world. So, you know, I'm trying to do my piece by looking at the the biblical texts and how they're used. But yeah, I've been drawing on awesome scholarship. And there's been great books coming out by others lately that are, you know, really helping us to understand this context. You know, the in the insider, uh, the sort of uh, conservative insider Christian right uh, story of origins goes back to Roe v. Wade in 73, right? Um, for the most part, uh, you know, this idea that the, the moral majority and all this came together in response to, uh, you know, attempts to legalize abortion. But, you know, there's, there are a few steps before that. And uh, for me, uh, you know, I go back through the civil rights era, where there's a huge sort of coalescence of the Christian right against the, the integration of schools, especially in the South. And uh, so there's the creation of the Christian homeschooling movement and uh, so-called Christian segregation academies in response to the civil rights movement. But even before that, we've got uh, a, a sort of economic conservatism. And this is where I wanted to start my narrative, really, about where Republican Jesus comes from is with FDR and the New Deal. Because, you know, FDR, it's like, it's little known, but that famous speech, his inauguration speech in 1934, where he uses that quote, the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? Like it's, it's, he's talking about the New Deal, like the New Deal is scary and he doesn't want people to be afraid of it. But the rest of the speech is like this crazy, really fascinating biblical um, uh, tale, like this biblical uh, focused speech in which he describes the uh, big bankers and corporations of his day as the money changers that uh, Jesus flips out at the temple. He flips their tables and all that. And it, it, it smacks of anti-Semitism. There's a little bit of anti-Semitism in there. There often is in interpretations of that scene. But what's interesting is after FDR starts to, uh, you know, take that approach, which is influenced by social gospel folks, all of a sudden you start to see a huge effort uh, among uh, Christians, you know, right-wing Christians who are emerging at this period in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, to create an anti-New Deal Jesus, a Jesus who's all about small government. So they keep going to the Eighth Commandment, for instance, and saying, well, you, sh- you, you shouldn't steal, right? And the government right. is trying to steal from us. Uh, and so it, th- this whole kind of economically conservative uh, Jesus develops, it takes on aspects of Christian nationalism, and uh, anti-communism in the the Cold War era, too. So uh, let's frame it this way, because I think it's pretty interesting in that these things, the thing I notice is things tend to move. Like the points that people have can be wind up in different groups, um, and things have changed pretty rapidly as they've been polarized in our last decade. So if if we rewind a decade, I would have been a person who was a Christian, self-identified evangelical, and although apolitical, really, I would have, uh, I wouldn't have thought of myself as right wing, but I would have been an evangelical Christian, and I would have had very liberal social values um, at that time, but I still would have been an evangelical Christian in doing so. I wouldn't have been interested in right wing politics. I wouldn't have been interested in Trump. I wouldn't be interested in immigration stuff or none of that stuff. Would have yeah, ever, yeah. and I would have been solidly a uh, evangelical Christian trying to make a difference for the gospel in my own language. Mm-hmm. Now, ten years has gone by, and now everybody that you're describing as Christian evangelical are just people's that listen to this podcast, aunts and uncles that are. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, so it's moved from <laughs> right. it being me to being only 
those people (laughs) (laughs) from from, from my view and from probably a lot of the view of a lot of our listeners. So it's weird because we were in that stream and then we saw it go off a cliff. Like we changed too. Like I moved a different direction on my own, whatever. But partly because that group that I was in, Evangelical Christianity, saw a cliff and went off of it for some reason. (laughs) I don't know. I don't understand what happened. Yeah, and it's it's so tough to contextualize. I think there are just a whole lot of things going into it. But you know, you've got a lot of people now who are saying that evangelical is is uh, now it's basically someone who watches Fox News, right? Right. And so it's, right. it's it is driving for sure um, people away from the label. There's a whole, especially in African American churches um, that would have used the label in the past. There's now a whole lot of scrutiny around whether you should even use that term because it implies a lot of things that it didn't, like you said, 10 years ago. I think the big difference in the last 10 years is the kind of infusion of Tea Party politics the uh, with the, the Christian rights message. And yeah. uh, you see that, especially with political leaders like, you know, Michelle Bachman, but these pundits like Bill O'Reilly. So when I talk about Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus in this book, t- to me, it's like a Tea Party reading of, of wow. uh, the gospel stories where Jesus is this tax protester against big government uh, in these ways that are, you know, they're really sneaky in a sense. Um, But it's totally in this subtle way. It's, it's presenting itself as though Jesus is the mouthpiece of what we now see as this kind of resentment politics uh, of Trump's uh, Christian right. Um, And it's, it's got earlier precedents, but it's really taken on a sharp edge lately. How intentional is it? And especially in this modern era, Gosh, you know, that's a that's a great question. I've gotten that a few times and uh, I never quite know what to do with it, because to me, I see cases where it's really obviously intentional, but it's also got to be unconscious sometimes, too. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, I just think that the you know, the the question I like to ask is, regardless of whether it's intentional or not, shouldn't we be holding them accountable for it? Um, So for me, it's just like you're doing this thing, you're getting it out there like. I, I think we need to hold you accountable for pushing this image of Jesus, which is so modern and so divorced from the ancient sources. Um, but yeah, you can definitely see I've got a, a better example than Bill O'Reilly of where you can see the intentionality is Ralph Reed, another one of the you know Trump's uh, evangelical uh, council men. Uh, he, he has a new book called, I think it's For God and Freedom. And he creates uh, a, a different theory about Trump, a different theory to understand Trump uh, as a kind of Christian savior of sorts, that it pivots from, you guys have probably heard of the Cyrus theory, right? You know, Cyrus the Great, the the Persian king who's named as Messiah in uh, Isaiah 45, 44 and 45. Uh, You know, this is a model for Trump. He's this brash outsider who nevertheless is sent by God to save Israel, Israel being related to modern Christians. Um, And, you know, uh, Ralph Reed tries to pivot from that and he says, actually, uh, Tiberius is a good model for Trump. Tiberius being uh, the emperor in the time of Jesus. And it's crazy to me because he's talking about Tiberius as a good model for Trump because the apostle Paul is able to assert his citizenship, his Christian and his citizenship within the Roman Empire and get a fair trial as a Christian under him. And so it's related to kind of contemporary citizenship uh, ideas. Here's the rub, right? Tiberius isn't actually the emperor that Paul is encountering. 
Tiberius is an emperor who we know a lot of shitty stuff about from antiquities. Like this, you know, he's viewed as this horrible deviant homosexual by uh, many modern conservatives uh, based on some ancient sources. And anyway, uh, the, in Acts of the Apostles, the emperor that uh, Paul is up against and in Christian tradition is Nero. And Ralph Reed actually elsewhere loves to talk about Nero in the sense of, uh, you know, when Obama's out golfing, instead of doing something that he wants him to do, he, he uses that line about, uh, you know, Obama's out uh, fiddling while Rome burns, which yeah. is famously a line about Nero. He knows that Nero is associated with Paul's martyrdom in Rome in reaction to the great fire of 64, but he is intentionally switched out Nero for Tiberius to create a model for uh, the emperor who protects Christian citizens instead of persecutes them. Mm-hmm. It's wow. been, so it's a real, there's a real cynical approach that you can really feel from people like that. And I think that's been sure. one of the ways that we've experienced it is like, you you know, 10 years ago, it was probably these Christian bloggers that I was following that wrote about stuff that seemed interesting to me about Jesus and his character and interpretation of scripture, things like that. People like, Eric Metaxas. And then all of a sudden, as soon as an opportunity comes their way, they just clearly demonstrate that they're cynical opportunist or something. Like, it's like, oh, you can, it's just like, you're just going to go this other way and have no integrity because it will work for you. Okay. I mean, you just, and it's, it's really a functional, and I I know the, the whole climate of everything's gotten so tense and people are scared, so I understand it. Like the tribalism is really heating up, so people just go with the hot hand or whatever's strong or whatever's working. But it's been weird to see people just totally go to that mode of, well, ignore the haters and go with what works and just whatever it is. It's just like political narrative spin all the way down and in, in, in all the stuff. So some of it seems quite ridiculously cynical to me, you know, intentional, and some not so much. And we're extra sensitive to that, too, because we saw it in the Christian music industry. Matt and I are in a band, Emory. And so we saw, I've seen so many Christian musicians who benefit and have used that. And we've been even have been tempted to do that sometimes and have played festivals, Christian festivals before, where I was like, ah, this is a paycheck. You know, more than, I, 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 I wouldn't attend this festival if I wasn't getting paid to be here and stuff like that. But when uh, when you talk about, Republican Jesus, what what does Republican Jesus stand for? You were talking about like he's against big government and stuff like that. What are some of the things that he stands for? And and is it what people actually believe about Jesus, like the evangelicals or the Christian right? Is this what they actually believe about it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. Uh, so yeah, Republican Jesus is, it's obviously, it's a metaphor. It's what I've used. You see it elsewhere on the internet, though. There's a great GOP Jesus YouTube video. Um, yeah, but Republican Jesus is a, a a version of Jesus created by the Christian right over the, the last century uh, to essentially put Republican positions into the mouth of the founder of Christianity and into the texts that are the authoritative divine word um, for Christians. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, in terms of positions, um, Republican Jesus, you get a diversity of things, right? Like, I don't want to pretend like there's a uniform Republican Jesus. Sure. Like you get a bunch of, you know, different views within uh, Republican interpretations of Jesus. But the one that's most dominant to me is he's a prophet of small government, by which I mean, he tends to be opposed to unions. He tends to be opposed to uh, any government uh, type of intervention programs like welfare. Um, and uh, he's definitely opposed to taxes in certain cases. Um, and so uh, some of these issues uh, are 
have come out a lot uh, in recent years. So and like, bless, you, blessed is the poor. <laughs> the people use that. It's like, oh, the poor are fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the Samaritan parable is uh, a favorite kind of uh, battle zone for uh, left-wing and right-wing Christians over some of these questions of big government. So, you know, the Samaritan parable in the Gospel of Luke, the, there's a dude dying on the road. He was, you know, hijacked by robbers or something. He's dying on the side of the road and, you know, a priest and a Levite pass him by and don't do anything. And then Samaritan comes and helps him, right? So the question has been, what does this Samaritan stand for? Does it stand for the government? And that's what FDR and liberals have tended to say. The government has to help the person dying on the roadside. Or does it stand for the individual, the individual or the church community who needs to take their own responsibility to help the person who's dying on the roadside and the government would actually rob them of that opportunity to love their neighbor if there were government welfare programs and, and uh, stuff along those lines. So the, the, the Samaritan comes up constantly in, in uh, welfare and uh, healthcare debates. And it's, it's interesting because wow. for me, at the end of the day, I read that story and it's in the context of a debate between Jesus and a Jewish uh, legal scholar over the most important line, arguably, in the New Testament, which is love your neighbor as yourself, right? They're debating about what the extent of that law, which is from Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible, like what, what's the extent of that law um, for people today? And the story is emphasizing a Samaritan who crosses religious, ethnic, and political lines to help somebody who's dying on the roadside. And he's not trying to turn the person into a Christian, which is what a lot of uh, Christian charities, uh, right-wing Christian charities um, and uh, mission organizations might do today. Famously, Franklin Graham Samaritan's Purse Organization. Oh, um, yes. Called Samaritan's Purse. You're right. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, also the Samaritan doesn't have to pay anything. Right. And I'm not saying that that's, uh, you know, uh, y- y- uh, a- an endorsement of universal health care. I actually think the left wing kind of universal health care um, reading of Jesus is a, is, a, is a little bit of an imposition, too, uh, on the story. But the Samaritan's not paying for anything at the end of the day, and he's not being discriminated against. And what often happens is when we've got these uh, charities and individuals who are supposed to take responsibility for the person dying on the roadside, there is an element of discrimination. There is a they should be Christian or they uh, should be white. Uh, they should be like us in some way or another. So it's it's a really fascinating story to kind of trace these debates mm-hmm. with. I liked That's- it in uh, sorry, man. I was gonna say I liked it in your book how you were describing some of it because it's it's so it feels like some of my family members talking to me. Like you said, uh, you know, Mary, young lady, pregnant, but obviously pro life. You know, so, so she, you know, she, uh, and then you know, there's a strong man that helped her have had the baby, and then you know, just some of the stuff. I was like, man, that just, you're right. Like the way the the story and the narrative now is it falls into being a Republican. Like the Bible falls into being a Republican, not Republican falls into being a Christian or something. You know what I mean? Like it, it, they yeah. move the story that way. It's so wild. Uh, I was going to ask you too. I mean, uh, is Republican Jesus? What would he? What would he say about like Black Lives Matter and and racial issues right now? Is he is he wearing a black lot? Li- is he protesting? <laughs> Oh, I don't think Republican Jesus would be. No, unfortunately, we have people like uh, uh, Pat Robertson, uh, uh, you know, famous televangelist um, saying that Black Lives Matter is anti-God. 
Um, uh-huh. And we have Eric Metaxas, uh, you know, out there on Twitter saying uh, Jesus is white. And, you know, and other people have said this, Megan Kelly, when she was with Fox News, Jesus right. is white and Santa's white and all that. Um, but not only is <laughs> Jesus white, but Jesus couldn't have had any white privilege because he is perfect. Right. And it's just like this total <laughs> misunderstanding of like what white privilege is. Right. Like white privilege isn't this like, you know, <laughs> intentional uh, necessarily. It isn't this kind of like an intentional and sinful thing. It's something that's structured into our society that gives people that look like me, um, you know, advantages in a number of spheres of life, employment, healthcare, uh, you know, uh, things along these lines. I think the Samaritan's Purse is a very interesting way to analyze it, because <clears throat> if you're trying to understand their po- the Republican Jesus point of view, they, and, and it's not, it's, I really don't think it's cynical on the ground level of any individual person, because I think they say, I care truly about helping people. Yeah. That's why I give money to Samaritan's Purse mm-hmm. to help people like the good Samaritan does. Like, mm-hmm. you, you can't go and call that some right-wing crazy evil thing that's racist. I mean, that makes them go insane, you know, right. but, but yeah. be, because that that is the way that they see it. But also to them, to help people— it is other people that are separate and different from them, though. Right. That's that they they're very big on the distinction of that's help those people over there with that thing, and then right. it can be so silly that it gets into you the the joke of you go drop off Bibles when they're starving and they don't you know like that'd be the extreme of it. But I yeah, mean, in sure. some sense, they just are trying to, you know, I don't really know, but they like they it's not that they hate i don't know like that's that's hard for it's hard to understand because from their point of view they don't hate other races or other people yeah they just think of them as separate and help but also help them so i I find that to be interesting yeah it's it's total i totally agree yeah and i you know i think this is part of the reason why republican jesus is so seductive he's not i mean you've got you know crazy cowboy brute aggressive jesus in some versions but most of the time, Republican Jesus is a pretty nice guy. Like he's doing things that are like he's he's promoting a type of love that is, uh, you know, expressed through charity, for instance. And the, so the question then I think is, well, is charity enough or is charity a Band-Aid that can distract us from trying to, you know, fix some of the structures and institutions of government uh, that have created so much inequality that charity is needed in the first place? And then this charity kind of reproduce that inequality by keeping, uh, you know, the people who are able to give the money in a position of power and mm-hmm. giving it to the people who are who need the money and who continue to need the money. Well, I, th- I see charity as largely functionally the kind of like human behavior where it would it's like a, it's like paying to get rid of your guilt, whatever practice that is in Catholicism or all. The, I, mean, I mean, most charities in that territory, right? And if everybody yeah, yeah. was really honest, like if you an- analyze it from a zoomed out sociological kind of point of view, that it'll keep showing up. I mean, and to be honest, it shows up in Black Lives Matter and for the the, the left, they, you know, they they're very interested to pay money and give to charities and do things that sure. because they feel guilty about things. I mean, that 
you know, that, that, that it should be evident that the right wingers also feel guilty about something. <laughs> they, they, you know, they do. They definitely yeah. do. They just don't talk about it. But the, the, some of the charity and missions I usually find are ways of dealing with, with what they, you know, of, of that. And in and, and every case, it's not becoming the Samaritan that does it yourself. It's paying other people to do, to do it for you. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it, it's funny too. In the New Testament, you you really get a mix of views of charity, but charity is all over the place. You got mm-hmm. a lot of promoting charity happening in the New Testament, and you know, a, a good deal of it is related to the kind of a theological paradigm in which you give to charity and you get rewards in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you get treasures in heaven. You store up treasures in heaven. That type of language. Um, but there are also places where it's, you know, you're giving charity for the poor. And there are places where, uh, especially in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where uh, there's uh, this idea of uh, helping the poor, giving to the, uh, you know, helping the oppressed, freeing the captives. Um, that is, it seems to imply something more like the ancient uh, Jubilee uh, legislation, uh, which is a kind of structural change. You know, the the people who are in debt are... Uh, uh, their debts are annulled, their debts are canceled um, every, uh, you know, 50th year, uh, but also every seventh year with a sabbatical year. Um, so the, the New Testament is also kind of pulling on these ancient Israelite traditions of kind of structural change, too. So I really see evidence for, you know, kind of both sides, like the only way to deal with poverty is we need big structural change. And the only way to deal with poverty is we need to uh, have individuals and churches um, you know, getting involved and taking an interest and, and doing chari- charitable acts to help people. I see evidence for both in the New Testament. I, I'm, I, you know, skipping over to my own opinion, I just think you need both. Mm-hmm. You definitely you definitely do. Um, you have three uh, it, ways of, of looking at interpretations of Jesus, and I think this is very useful. Uh, and, and tell me, I don't know if you have exact different names for them, but you said there's the historical Jesus, where we look at that person, and then there's the Jesus that the gospel writers are talking about, mm-hmm. and that's just like a spiritual, you know, that's got some of the real stuff going on in it, and then there's Republican Jesus, which is then strip, you know, stripped, perverted, removed from, utilized, co-opted, or whatever. So... <clears throat> How do you explain the, the difference in, in the three? Or, I mean, you know, if you could talk more about those, those three and, and how you utilize them. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, as a historian, I uh, focus mainly on the Gospels. Um, so the historical Jesus, the dude that lived in, you know, I don't know, something like six or four BCE before the Common Era to about 30, uh, you know, we can reconstruct a lot of uh, what his context would have been like and his life would have been like from archaeology, a little using some of our sources from the Gospels. But it's hard to reconstruct the historical Jesus from the Gospels. There have been huge debates over how to do it because they don't always have the same words. You know, they don't always have the same events. And that's not to say they contradict each other all the time or anything like that. But there are some tensions that have created this like crazy mountain of scholarship to try to figure out like what criteria do we use to get rid of all of the myth around it and get down to an actual historical Jesus. Um, So a lot of scholars like myself would uh, prefer to kind of focus on the Gospels, which is where we can see different, you know, different communities, different authors writing for different communities to tell the story of Jesus in different ways, to make meaning of it in different ways based on uh, traditions that have been passed down to them. 
Um, and so each of these, you know, the, my approach is very much thinking of each of these communities in context. Um, so Mark's community, Matthew's community, Luke's and John's, to think of them as having different contexts and therefore telling different stories in ways where the differences are interesting and worth thinking about. So how, though, is that different than what Trump is doing, though? Like, you know, Luke had his own agenda, it sounds like you're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a narrative. Absolutely. It's a spin. It, it is a spin, um, and it's a spin that often is um, drawing on the Hebrew Bible, on the Old, the Old Testament, in, in ways that are very similar to how the Republican Christian right draws on the New Testament, um, sort of cherry picking in a sense. Um, and so, yeah, how different is it? That's, it, it to me, um, any interpretation is, uh, is just that. It, is, uh, it involves this process of incorporating, you know, how in, of understanding and creating meaning of these ancient texts in a, uh, in a way that makes sense for your community, right? And so I, I, I see them, you know, these gospel writers and the Republican Christian right doing the same sort of thing in that way. Um, where the Christian right goes a little further, I think, is uh, they're not giving us a full narrative usually, they're often just focusing in on a single verse. They're not even giving us a full story uh, much of the time. And so that allows this mm-hmm. kind of really um, irresponsible use of sources, which is something that we see just a lot in this kind of post-truth era of Trump, where it's like, you know, we don't actually, like, you're just giving us a soundbite that is, it, it's often fear-mongering, um, and, you know, we don't have the rest of the story. So at least with the Gospels, we've kind of got a full story um, to, to work with. That makes sense. Because it'd be like, if you told Trump to write 10,000 words on Jesus, then you would know. <laughs> You'd know right. something if he had to turn that assignment in. <laughs> well, 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 I'd like my... to see Trump write 10,000 yeah. words on anything. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you exactly. You aren't kidding. That, that leads me to my question, too, though. How, how can you, how does the Christian person keep looking past Trump's uh, obvious blatant lying like it, it, that, that's what i don't understand because for example if trump was a democrat they would biblically as- annihilate him oh, they would use yeah. the bible to say he's the worst evil uh, spawn of satan right uh, how, how yeah. do they justify he's from god yeah no that's, that's a great question I, you know as someone who's not a, a practicing christian myself um, I can only rely mainly on, uh, you know, friends who are pastors and students and, you know, who are in the Christian fold a bit more to to help me uh, kind of shed light on uh, the, the different movements that are actually really tearing, tearing Trump's uses of the Bible and Trump's uh, uh, influencers uses of the Bible apart. So, you know, uh, folks like uh, Jim Wallace is Sojourner's uh, magazine and movement and uh uh, William Barber and Liz Theo Harris's Poor People's Campaign, you know, these movements on the left that are really, uh, you know, organizing against uh, the right and calling out all of the, uh, you know, these misuses of the Bible. But, you know, to get back to how how is the right justifying it, um, there's a, a really famous uh, speech that Trump gave. It must have been in 2016 or something like that on the campaign trail. Or yeah, something like that. No, it's 2015, 2016, where he gives that line uh, at, at uh, he's at Dort University, uh, you know, a Christian college in Iowa, and he gives that that famous line at how I could shoot somebody uh, in the middle of Fifth Street and I wouldn't lose any voters, right? Which right. like here's your sign, like how is that 
how is that not a big enough red flag right. <laughs> that this person is, should not be elected? I, but you know, that, that's just my opinion. Um, but the, the rest of that speech was a communication to Christians that he, it, it, Christians on the right in particular, that he really has been pretty faithful to. He says, Christianity will have power. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty right. of power. You right. don't need anybody else. And yeah. in his Supreme Court picks and all of this, like he's doing that. He's, he's making sure that the people who fit his particular brand of Christianity, this largely yeah. that 81% of white evangelicals who voted for him, that base, he's making sure that they have the power that they want, whether it's moving the, Jeru- the embassy to Jerusalem to support Israel, whether it's, uh, you know, nominating Supreme Court justices who are pro-life, you know, all of these types of issues. Like he's, he's following through on that. That's probably the simplest way to explain it is, is you're saying that even in that speech and many times he's telegraphed, implicated, or explicitly stated, you you will receive power. So go ahead and loosen any morals you need to. The reward will be you will, you will have power. It's just almost a direct promise of that. So mm-hmm. we know from, you know, humanity, that's pretty irresistible. So it, whoever that was, they would, you know, whatever group it was, if you promised them direct power, maybe Metaxas gets a cabinet. So, you know, nobody can resist that. I mean, you don't, you shouldn't expect any group of people to resist it if it happens to them is what I'm sure. saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those influencers really are, do push it. Fox News, the, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, there's so many influencers now that are just pushing pro-Trump and, and they do just enough I don't agree with everything he says, but it, they kind of do always. It seems that way. It's really crazy. I think some of it, too, I was going to ask you, historically as well, is it, too, that uh, Christians are scared and and they just latch on to the things that they can control? For example, it's always the big issues, homosexuality, uh, uh, gender issues, abortion. Like, it, Jesus, in his time, was was he concerned about some, those things like abortion? Was he were the Jews there uh, fighting the same way as the American right is now? Is the question what was Jesus scared of? <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe so. Or trying to uh, politically? Yeah, I think on. Jesus was because that's of the what Roman motivates Empire, the right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the the right's motivated by fear is what you're saying. Now they don't say yeah. it that way. They don't say I'm so scared that's why I want guns or whatever. Right. They don't say that. But they are. But but you know Jesus didn't operate from that from the fear thing so right. much in that in that way so it'd be hard to make sense out of yeah for sure i think you know i think they're they're operating on fear they're all also uh you know they're creating a sense of purpose they're they're crafting a certain sense of christian identity that it uses it uses boundaries you know in a sense of like th- you know they create boundaries this is us this is them well the, this is us especially when it's attached to this idea of we're uh you know uh, fighting for the Christian nation, for a nation chosen by God is so powerful. You know, it's, it's a really, uh, it's a difficult message to, um, to resist, especially when it's coming from a number of people who are in positions of religious and political power. The persecution um, narrative is huge. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you asked about uh, abortion. Uh, abortion's not mentioned in the new Testament. And this was actually a really big point of contention um, I would I would say abortion is not mentioned anywhere in the, in the Bible. Uh, this is a big point of contention among uh, Christians in the 60s, right? So I mean, even as late as 71, the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, voting in favor of liberalizing access to abortion. Um, this is a really it, it really the the idea of um, uh, there being evidence of fetal personhood uh, in the New Testament 
uh, is something that really didn't uh, start to come together until the 70s. And you've got some traces of it before then, but in the 60s, there are debates going on in Christianity today, for instance, in which they don't know if abortion is a blessing. They can't decide if abortion is a blessing or if it's um, demonic, you know? And it's, it's interesting because that kind of history gets covered up. It gets whitewashed into this idea that, well, Christians have always been, um, have always been against abortion. Uh, they've always been pro-life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up Catholic, so... For me, I, I, you know, I got the pro-life uh, right. language all the time. I never thought about the, the kind of history of it. But yeah, you don't, you don't quite have that in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The, it's fascinating to me that the, uh, that in, you know, the way things are going today, that it's speeding up. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is cracking. I'm not tearing up or going yeah. through puberty. Either one, I assure you. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's. It's like it's sped up, and the evangelical right that from 10 years ago today, I know the numbers have changed and gone down in a lot of ways, but it's, it's would you say it's fair to say that this has uh, become more cult-like? Like it's taken another step towards smaller, more narrow, more tribal, more, you said the word boundaries a second there, yeah. the persecution narrative. It seems like it's ratcheted a step toward that smaller, more... You know, that way. And then do you see this? Da- this I mean, I know you see this as dangerous, but could you talk to us about wh- how dangerous is all this? Where is it going? Yeah, that's oh, those are tough questions. The you know, there's a, a book uh, on uh, by a cult special, a specialist on, um, you know, people leaving cults guy named Stephen Hassan, um, who he argues that the, the Trump phenomenon that we're seeing is it is exhibiting a lot of tendencies of what we would call a cult. That being said, I, I, I do worry that um, calling it a cult is a bit of a, a, a cop out uh, to think of it as not, you know, a, a, to think of it as not uh, not Christian. Uh, that is to say, I see mm. I see the kind of cult language used sometimes to kind of uh, to say, oh, well, anyone who's a part of this is is just crazy. And I just I, I don't know. I, I think it's a little it's a little too hasty. Um, there, these people are trying to, um, especially not, you know, moving from the influencers to your average Christian who votes right. You know, I think these are people who are trying to, uh, you know, vote with their heart, and uh, they're they are, uh, you know, uh, in an alternative media universe, as it's been called, with with Fox News and these Christian right influencers that, uh, you know, it's, it's creating uh, an idea of Christianity that's new and it's changing, but it's changing in ways that aren't totally clear to everyone, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the reason why I think that, the, that um, kind of studying the history, uh, the modern history, especially of the development of Christian interpretations of right-wing interpretations and left-wing interpretations of the Bible uh, allows some interesting kind of context. Mm-hmm. It does seem, though, you know, we've seen the pandemic speed things up by years, like trends, and this is a trend for some time that has already sped up. And when intense events happen and polarization goes up, I mean, it's I find it's you know frightening, just to be honest. I mean, with what's going to happen with this election coming up, if it goes badly, well, this 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 side here that we're discussing today will be very powerful and very more motivated than they are today by who knows a factor of what, like how much more intense can they get about this is my question. 
Yeah, for sure. And for, for, for me, the most alarming aspect is the kind of militarization that we're seeing. And that militarization, you know, like it, it goes back to the kind of uh, the Eisenhower era, like Cold War uh, and into the Cold War kind of era, you know, this uh, uh, sort of idea of we need to fight the commies. Like Christians are, uh, are uh, defending capitalism, uh, you know, Christianity and capitalism are kind of combined and everything else is communist. And even, you know, liberal churches fell under the umbrella. They were tried by the, the McCarthy hearings and all that no. um, as, you know, being socialist or communist. Um, so it's, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of that, that type of uh, stuff again, but mixed with this huge uh, um, um, spending on military, uh, military stuff and, uh, you know, military uh, spending mixed with uh, this, you know, really ardent type of, uh, you know, gun, con- uh, uh, anti-gun control, pro-gun rights yeah. uh, type of language, which mm-hmm. that's, that's really one of the most striking um, recent developments for me is seeing how much of the, the gun culture um, has come out in uh, Republican Christian interpretations of the New Testament even lately. And so, I mean, we've got the McCloskeys at uh, the Republican National Convention, right. right, who are on their front yard waving <laughs> rifles <laughs> at Black Lives Matter protesters who are going by. And it's, you know, that's that's really scary. Um, and yeah, I'd like to think that it's, you know, this is uh, something that only a couple of people think it's like a really a fringe phenomenon but you know what we keep seeing it with shooters we you know these these shootings whether it's the 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 kid at uh, uh you know the poway shooter the poway synagogue shooter the tree of life synagogue shooter like these are in- people with anti-semitic ideas who are dr- they give us uh manifestos that you know include really anti-jewish language from the new testament um and they're really, you know, they're dangerous. I think the the intensity with which uh, a fervor for guns mm-hmm. uh, right now uh, has been mixed with Christianity. The tone, yeah, that's what yeah. that's what's really scary. I wanted to uh, go back real quick. It's funny, Matt. I'm glad you brought up the cult stuff. We've been really thinking through this idea of cult and cult. The word cult seems so uh, uh, dangerous and evil, and it's always about murder and stuff like that. But I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, medium. Be about orgies too. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. Well, like, well that's, that's uh, I'm a big fan of medium, and I had this uh, article by Sam and Terry on there. Uh, Sam and Tanner, I'm sorry. Uh, it says ten signs you're probably in a cult, and so the first one, the leader is the ultimate authority. Sounds maybe a little bit there. How about number two? The group suppresses skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> How about number three? The group delegitimizes former members. Think about all the people that right. Trump has fired, and why did he fire? Well, he had to get rid of them. Oh man, those guys are so bad. You know that they, uh, they, they, you know, they're all writing bad books about him now, and all that stuff. Number four, the group is paranoid about the outside world. Mm. Number five, the group relies on shame cycles. <laughs> number six, the leader is above the law. Uh, number seven, the group uses thought reform methods. If, if your serious questions are answered with cliches, you're probably in a cult. And I was thinking about how Donald Trump's language and the, the cliche stuff that he uses and the repetitive length, uh, you know, dialogue. Nobody reads the Bible more than me. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, 100%. The, kind of a- eight's the group's elitist. Nine, there is no financial transparency. <laughs> 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 oh boy and then 10 
the group performs secret rites, which I kind of think happens in some churches. You know, they're, they you know that they, they, they meet together for a prayer group and then they talk about how bad the left is and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think I mean that those ten signs of a cult seem to apply to th- it's, this. It's just it? healthy thinking to analyze whatever my belief is that it's helpful thinking, not to accuse or label. I don't. I'm not into that, but yeah. to. Think about your involvement in your social, political, right. religious groups through that lens is yeah, what yeah. everybody should be doing, including down to your company that you work for. Because in my view, there are anything that is a culture or a microculture is, you know, at least what I would call a potential cult because you don't know its de- of, of eventual destination. And you should be very carefully thinking about groupthink and your involvement with everything you're involved in. We farm out many decisions and knowledge in groupthink. I do it every day. We all do. Hmm. But if you can't face that or ask those questions, then you you should. That's all. Gosh, I I totally agree. If anything, I'd I'd add to that list information control. You know, this kind of demonization of fake news that we see, it, it, uh, it stifles questioning. It stifles critical thinking. And mm-hmm. like, I don't know, I'm all about like asking questions and learning and uh, being challenged by sources and different opinions and things like that. And this kind of, uh, you know, uniformity of thinking that uh, is promoted by the anti-fake news is is definitely a scary aspect of that. It is very scary language. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things they say about, uh, you know, how to how to get out of a cult, uh, you know, is often uh talking to people uh who have you know kind of gotten out of a cult before and i w- i wish we saw more of those you know i wish we had more of those in the news actually people who that is to say were trumpers who are now never trumpers but might That's still right. be consider themselves on the right in in some way and conservative right. or evangelical or whatever mark galley of christianity today writing that uh, editorial um uh, that uh, you know uh, uh, called for trump's impeachment People like that. I think we need to see more of that in the media so that people can see that you can step out of this fold and still be a Christian, still be a good person, uh, still be, you know, whatever. Well, Tony, thank you so much for helping make the point. But that is really what this podcast is kind of about, is that, uh, like I said, 10 years ago, I was in what I think now as of a cult. I mean, it's a a particular uh, intense group of evangelical Christianity that I was involved with, and that's the best way for me to f- think of my own story. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that on many different for other things I've been involved in or am that can be described as cults. I, I'm comfortable with that. But our audience mm-hmm. is people like that who we were there. We were trying to be Christians. We're big on yeah. Jesus. And now the, some half of the mainstream is acting like we don't know the guy. Yeah. And we, it doesn't, you don't have to, if you can retain thinking for yourself, wake up from group think, be a bad cult member, then you can have your own, become self determined in your thinking about who Jesus is. You can, of course, you can be a Christian. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so frustrating to see other people co opt or take something and, and do that. But it, that's what it is. Is if, if, you know, a bunch of people take it over, that they, they can do it. And then it becomes almost impossible to hold the, the middle ground, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So whether or not you have the historical view or the gospel writer's view or your own view or, or Donald Trump's view, I mean, yeah. that's a multiple choice question. You can choose for yourself which one you think is the best right. lens to look, through, look at him through, but Jesus is important either way. Yeah, totally. 
Tony, this has been great, man. I really enjoy this. As of uh, October 6th, the book is out, correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, and it's called Republican Jesus, How the Right Has Rewritten the Gospels. Where Can folks find it anywhere? Uh, where anywhere, you want people yeah. to go? Yep. They can find it anywhere. And what if people want to find out more about you? Where'd they go? Uh, RepublicanJesusBook.com. I've got some of my other articles on the Christian right up there, and I've got some resources for people interested in uh, kind of challenging the Christian right, uh, uh, you know, at seeing other alternative interpretations um, that, you know, are, are worth hearing and uh, worth kind of challenging ourselves with, I think. I really appreciate your disposition. I don't know if you consider yourself nonpartisan or something like that, but I mean, you're, you're really explaining this from your point of view as an expert and looking at this and, and how it all works. Um, so I think it's very effective at pushing back against a dangerous notion, but also not doing it from a counterpoint of view with a, a, a liberal agenda. I don't really get that, you know, exactly from you. I feel like it, it's a very balanced disposition. That really yeah. means a lot today because a lot of people push the other way in some way that makes it hard to entertain and really speak about. So I really appreciate your approach very much. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been really great talking with you guys. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you. All right, Tony Keddy. Man, that, yeah, was, a, that was a hell Tony. of an interview. That was awesome. The only thing that bothered me was all your breaking up voice, Matt. My God, well, I thought you were emotional or whatever, but good Lord. I, I apologize, listeners. My God, I don't know. What, what, I mean, the man that says he's never sick or something, all of a sudden, either you're, not, in, in, you're sick or in tears. What is, I think it is uh, second puberty. <laughs> You've not heard of that? Well, you know why I believe that? Because you, you're pretty hairless. <laughs> Maybe you might be bushy. <laughs> yeah, it's just I had puberty part one, and you know I didn't get part two yet. So right. eventually I will get facial hair and chest hair. Balls are going to drop? Good I think, Lord. yeah, balls are going to go on down a little lower. I mean, they've descended. It's just they, they could go they, lower. They do nice, descend you know? with age. Yeah. So, I, but yeah, I went through puberty late. That's a, that's one sign. I was that's I got made fun of when I was old. sixteen years old oh. on the varsity tennis team and didn't have an <laughs> underarm hair. Um, that I did get made fun of for that, right? You know, <laughs> and uh, you saw you've been you've been with me pretty much briefly after that when I was zitty in my mid twenties. Very when zitty. Most people yeah. get over that when they're you know sixteen, seventeen. Right. So I'm, I have a very delayed program overall so i wouldn't be surprised if i got a late puberty dose here but oh boy on the other end of that i mean it'll be so you know. awesome if like a year from now you just have a full <laughs> man beard chest hair you know, a man maybe you turn into like a dad bod like you're yep. a skinny little rail maybe like you finally your voice is lower and you Hello, Tony Keddy. I would uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> That'll be so no, awesome. It'll be like I'm roided out type. I'll be a mean, mean. You know, I'll be aggressive. But you know, by more than I am now in a tough, tough way. Not just an irritated aggressive that I am now. <laughs> right. Well, that was a great interview. If uh, you want to hear more about uh, follow Matt's journey, you can join the BC Club. <laughs> uh, we got a great crew in there. It gets better and better every single year. And we, this crew's been going for a long time. And uh, we really appreciate it. It helps support this podcast. Uh, it makes a big difference. It's a great community, great people, friends with a lot of those folks. Many We've of them, just maybe now most. come to really uh, start to get a grip and understand on a definition that kind of fits the BC Club. And it does hinge around what we were just talking about there. Yeah. The thing that people have in common the most in BC Club, it's not Screamo fans or fans of Matt's voice or Toby's Handsomeness. fans. It's not that. The people that are in the BC Club are people that simply resonated with our journey across time that we did on this podcast as we kind of, 
I would say slowly have changed and woken up from groupthink in different areas as we have become more self-determined in our own views and arrived at them. And so the people in the BC Club are best described by having undergone a similar process, but from many different places, whether it's this type of church or that type of family or this type of thinking, is people that have kind of been able to be self-determined in their own thinking. That seems to be the best description and what they have in common. It makes a really good group. It's a very healthy group, self-regulating. It's yeah. not moderated or anything like that. And it, and it's a stable group. There's, you know, 650 people in the Facebook group now. Um, and it's a real cohesive kind of balanced unit. And I think that's part of the reason is because they're all, you know, more independent thinkers than they used to be. And it's a, it's a nice collection of, of, of people like that. So that if you if that describes you, I think you belong in the BC Club, and you can join it by going to thebcclub.com or on Patreon, however you got to do it. We'll see you in there. I was thinking about it, too. Everybody should feel good after this episode because we're all like Jesus in 2020. We've all been sitting here to suffer and die. <laughs> <laughs> 